Coming up in this episode... A lot of like great relationships are built by doing experiences with people. And I think... Or shared um, suffering. Or shared suffering, whatever. And I think the more extreme the experiences are, the deeper the relationship you can build. And so I think by doing like a, a hard fast and having these shared experiences around like being hungry and like, you know, going through the ups and downs, you can actually build like really good relationships. And I think that was something that absolutely brought our company closer together because um, we would obviously work. But we'd have this whole like camaraderie around these like call it like challenges or biohacks that really kind of like thrust through these struggles together. And yeah. I think that's like when you look at like people like organizing like team building summits, you, you do like these challenges and like all these like kind of like manufactured exercises to do that. And we were just like doing it just organically, just organically yeah. and normally. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern Nutrition. Welcome to this very special edition of the HMN Podcast. So the global team of HMN is actually now in Lake Tahoe. And every year we have an annual retreat, annual ski trip to really plan out not just Q1, but the rest of the year. So a lot of exciting material and plans and strategies that we're developing for all of you guys to enjoy in the new decade of 2020 give you guys more of an insight behind some of the key people that have built this company with me and Michael over the last four years is Paul Benajiri. Some of you guys might know him as what New York Magazine calls a handsome Stanford grad, but I call him our Vice President of Engineering and Growth. Welcome to the program, Paul. Great. Super excited to be here. Um, I've listened to a lot of these episodes and obviously I've been in the company for a while now, so so this means a lot to me. I want to cover about three broad themes here. I want to show and expose the kind of caliber of people around us in, in this community, one. And then two, talk about leadership and culture. I've seen that as our longest standing collaborator and team member here, part of the founding team, you've established a lot of the cultural best practices and have really evolved as a leader. So I definitely want to touch upon those learnings and those best practices. And I remember some of the conversations when we've had elite athletes or folks from large defense institutions come and visit us. They really complimented us on our team dynamic, team energy, team spirit. And I think you're a really key part of that. So I want to talk about your contributions, your thoughts in that aspect. And the last broad theme I want to talk about is... Human performance. I mean, obviously, that's been a cultural, I mean, part of the, our, our reason of existence here behind at HVMN. And you've been not just a key part of that, but also initiated some of the key trends that have impacted not just Silicon Valley, but global trends. So we'll dive into some of those biohacking stories, as well as you really introducing intermittent fasting to me and HVMN and basically rest of Silicon Valley in the world. So a lot of interesting anecdotes and learnings there. Let's just start off with uh, a little bit about your background and uh, the get a sense of the human behind the, the handsome Stanford grad. Ah, thanks, man. Yeah. All right. So I was originally born in France and grew up, uh, moved around a bunch because my dad worked uh, for IBM, was expatriated. So one of the interesting things that I was exposed to like a lot of different cultures early, so lived a little bit in Paris, a little bit in London, New York. So I was really kind of like thrown in, uh, for example, like in London without knowing any English. I went to English speaking school, didn't know how to speak English, 
So the first couple of weeks were rough. And I think that kind of like really instilled a lot of a uh, learning mindset for me, which I think is important for individuals and also for teams. Um, then fast forward uh, to college. I went to college, you know, um, same as you at Stanford University, studied computer science. Um, my main track was computer systems, even though that wasn't my favorite. Um, that's what I thought what would kind of like push me to learn the most. And I think like one of the things that I got um, that was really valuable from that was not necessarily just the uh, tech experience, but the ability to kind of like think about systems. And I think like a lot of the ways I think about just life in general is kind of like modeling it as a system because systems, you know, like like we talk about in a lot of our values and a lot of our initial like content and post, if you think of things as a system of inputs and outputs, it's really easy to be objective and rational about how to improve them. So I graduated early. I graduated in three years because I got a, a bunch of credits and was excited to move into the real world. I spent a lot of time getting involved in cryptocurrencies. So I set up some mining rigs in my dorm rooms because there's free electricity, got really involved with like profit switching mining pools. And I actually really got close to Jeff through a company I initially started to work on right after college called Backslash, which was a cryptocurrency payments platform. And Jeff was an advisor. And, you know, through that a year and a half of two years of working on that after college, um, I got into human performance and trying to improve my my biometrics, trying to cut out soda, trying to eat healthy. So Jeff and I kind of like stayed in touch. And I was one of the early nootropic users, like one of the old, like we, we used to have blue bottles of rice that, Jeff, that. Yeah. Jeff and Mike Grant <laughs> used to package. And I remember getting some of those first ones in like a little newspaper envelope. Like they, they initially packaged the first uh, rice bottles in I think New York Times print as a little uh, yeah. Wall Street Journal as a little kind of like delight factor. When that wrapped up, I think I really respected Jeff's um, business sense and advice. And I think Jeff saw that I worked hard and, and had some value to bring to the table. And then as soon as that wrapped up, I was like, hey, Jeff, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something new. Um, Jeff and my grant had just raised money. So it was like really good time. And I remember coming in on the interview, like, you know, on a Sunday and just moving really quickly. And I think that kind of like set a lot of the frame for how a lot of things happen at HBMN. Like we try to move really quickly, um, try to learn fast. Um, and that's kind of like my background. And I started off doing a lot of computer science for the company and software engineering, building up the website. And then through that, we kind of realized that it's not just, we can't just build a beautiful website, a really nice website. We have to think about like marketing and distribution and design. And through that, I kind of um, learned a lot about those different functions and helped build teams to kind of like level our, our company up in those in those regards. Yeah, I think that's a interesting overview. And I think the fact that we both specialize in systems at computers at Stanford is an interesting shared experience because the way you talk about inputs and outputs in modeling not just computers as a system, but almost every aspect that humans try to engage in, whether that's human performance or building company cultures. I think the systems approach is a rigorous, very quantitative approach to do something like that. I think you already start seeing the snapshots of where we came from. I think we were very tech, Silicon Valley oriented in the early days. And as we've really grown and evolved the community, I would say that we've gotten a lot more sophisticated, a lot more nuanced around the broader aspects of running a business and growing a brand, growing a community. Um, can you speak towards a little bit of the, the self-learning process, whether that just having an opportunity to make mistakes and learning from them, having such unconstrained scope is intimidating. What was your mindset going into it? Was that something that excited you? Is that something that's intimidating, a little bit of both? I'm curious in terms of your training, your personality, how did you respond to that initial scope in the beginning? I think that different people have inclinations toward different types of work. 
Um, to me, I was working with a really awesome team on a generally interesting problem space of human performance. So it didn't really matter like what the, you know, day-to-day work was. It was like, hey, let's let's do this. Let's like build this together. Um, and so it just goes down to, I think it, it goes back to one of the mindsets that's like really important for effective growth as a team or as an individual. Um, it's kind of having like two modes of operation. So there's Paul that does work. And there's also Paul that like takes a step back and like watches Paul from above and guides, you know, the worker Paul. Um, and so being able to be self-aware and identifying like what you know, what you don't know is really important. And I think most of these things are solvable and have been solved by like really smart people, right? Um, so for example, like one of the things we've worked on a lot is Facebook ads, paid social. There are dozens and dozens of companies and people that have spent years and years and years mastering that. Spending millions and Spending millions of dollars. And so instead of, uh, instead of someone going out and doing that for the first time by themselves, making all of the basic mistakes, what you can do is inherit like someone else's plan, right? And that might not be perfect for your company, but you can almost like copy their plan, you know, entirely or, or, or almost entirely. And you kind of start off with like a B plus solution for you and your company. And then from there, you run that for a month, two months, you identify some weaknesses. You, again, you, you take a step back, look at it as a system, You're like, hey, what's working, what's not working. And then you just like, block and tackle, right? You look at like, hey, this is difficult for us. Let me go talk to person A, B, and C and get some feedback there. And so I think that the combination of just having like that ambition, that excitement to just like work on cool things, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter like what specifically, whether it's marketing or call it engineering or, or building this, um, just like solving problems is kind of like, you know, uh, interesting. And if you're able to kind of like go to people that are senior that have done this you know, for many years, and they're usually very willing to give feedback and give advice. Um, so you can kind of like really kickstart that growth. And then you're on your own trying to like iterate on that B plus solution you just inherited from someone. I think one thing that you mentioned that I think is interesting and worth unpacking is this notion of decompartmentalizing or what you said, that self-awareness where you have the individual contributor, the day-to-day work, Paul, and then the meta Paul, which is the observer that looks at what Paul's doing and can he improve that system. What I've observed with people that I see as really effective, really efficient, is an ability to really see reality, see the truth about how they're operating and admitting weaknesses and then actively fixing those weaknesses or doubling down on strengths. My observation is that most people either never ask themselves those hard questions are uh, they're too afraid to say that hey like i'm bad at this and like i need to do a lot of work to improve or focusing on, on anesthesia which is like hey i'm not gonna think about it too hard because it's kind of stressful to think about myself as a weak or something that needs improvement i'm gonna just like go watch netflix or they live vicariously through other people was there like a key moment where you're like hey i can really create a reality or a, or a version of myself that's really what i want to be I feel like most people seem disempowered. They're very passive in their life. And I know I've known you for quite some time and you're a very active participant in molding your life, your your personality, your goals. I think that it's a combination of two things. Just um I used to be like in, in all these like high school tests, I got like tested with like um really high, like unusually high like inner conviction. So that's kind of like a strength and a weakness. Like I think I can do like anything. Um it just takes time. Um, and I think that pushes me to be like, okay, like I can't do it right now, but I can do it. So like, what do I need to learn and figure it out? Going back to teams, having that self-awareness and that ability to kind of just realize like you're not perfect 
And just by doing something else and learning from someone else that's done it for longer, you can obviously get better. It, it's, it's almost like an obvious truth, right? Like even the best athlete still has a coach, still works on training some things, right? Um, so you can't really, it's, it's, um, it, it's just like incorrect to think that you're, you're not, you don't have like room to grow. Yeah, I think um, one of my favorite sayings is life is too short to make all the mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes, yeah. right? Also, over time, seeing that you can learn things and get good pretty quickly, whether that's a extracurricular sport or, you know, um, cooking or different aspects of your career, or your work, you can, you can learn a new language, right? Like people have done that. You can learn marketing, right? Everybody's had to like learn what they're good at. Um, and then I think just like seeing enough people and also just like seeing from yourself, like you, like as an individual being able to grow, once you see that, you can be like, Hey, you can really just like learn anything. The question is like, are you able to put in like the motivation and the time? Right. Um, so I could maybe be a decent ish basketball player if I put in like 10,000 hours and like spend my whole life working on it. Um, but I'm not doing that. So I have like no expectation to do that. But from like a work perspective, like I spend a lot of hours like learning, I spend a lot of hours on the marketing side, on the engineering side, on the management side. So I do have an expectation to be able to grow. And there's this kind of like self-fulfilling, um, kind of like learning cycle where you go back and like, man, two years ago, I learned so much. I was like, so almost like silly or so dumb. I learned so much. You're like, okay, cool. Like what's the next phase? Like clearly you haven't learned everything there's to learn in two years. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I hope, I think we both share the sentiment that hopefully we always look back to, for the two years ago version of ourselves and be like, wow, that person was silly. That person was so naive. Um, I think that's like a good objective function in terms of how we want to live and how one strives and, and moves forward. It's uh, looking back. It's amazing. Like how much your brain can hold. Like I take a lot of notes um, and try to write down everything I can. But it's amazing to see like how much my brain looks at the world differently because of like all of my compounded like experiences, right? Just yeah. because I've, you know, been working for a bunch of years. So I just have like this different view that Paul coming out of college just like did not have, did not understand. And so like a lot of the mistakes I made that, you know, other people gave me advice about, like when I had like the YC interviews, Y Combinator, some some startup interview uh, thing. Um, when I initially got that feedback, it's like, oh, no, like our idea is like pretty good. And now I'm like, oh, man, like they're totally right. I totally see the world like the same way they yeah. do. And so kind of like having those moments reinforces the fact like, hey, make sure you lean on senior people, smart people to help gut check and reinforce your decisions. Yeah, I think that's like an interesting tidbit there where I think a lot of young gunners who graduate from a top prestigious university, I don't want to sound overly contrived or, or arrogant here, but I think folks that have been lucky to have that kind of education opportunity are told that they're the future leaders of the world, that they're awesome, they're geniuses, you're great. And I think a lot of these people end up being overly confident, overly arrogant in terms of what their knowledge set and skill set is versus reality. And I think I had the similar journey as you where you're 22, 21, have a nice Stanford computer science degree. All these big tech companies want to give you six figure jobs right outside of school. It's like, a, you know, like basically infinite money compared to like college student where, you know, a few thousand bucks is going to like change like how much you can live and party and whatnot for a month or a couple months. And then you, you, you read all these startup books or business books or leadership books and they give you these little ax axioms or these short phrases like, oh, like only work with great people, like only work with you know, fire quickly, all these like kind of like simple statements that seem obvious, but you don't have enough of that scar tissue, that battle experience to actually understand what it means. Yeah. And I think 
you, it sounds like you've internalized some of these lessons around like, oh, like your core business assumptions were not great. And you're like, no, I'm smarter than you. Like, I, I like get it. And now in retrospect, like, oh, yeah, like some of these fundamental assumptions I had about the world, like just don't don't seem true. And I think one of the analogies I think about a lot is that some of these axioms that are very simple, almost like Zen Cohen or like these like seven word sentences are like raisins of truth that that miss all the life experience in that grape. Mm-hmm. Like it's just distilled so much where it's like transmittable, but you really want that grape. You really want to have like that punch of like, oh, I messed that up. Now I like have to fix it and it takes me two months to fix something. You know, like fire fast, mm-hmm. right? And I think... Hire slow, fire fast. Yeah, I think that's like a good one because I think we've, you know, I would say like you were lucky to have worked with really, really good people, but sometimes there's not a culture fit or a personality fit or a business fit. And I think it's really hard to fire a first person or like to recognize that, hey, like this is not going to work out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've had experience with that, whether it's with colleagues or agencies or partners. And it's like scary. Like, yeah, of course, fire fast. And it's funny because one additional piece of context to that uh, that axiom is that um, usually like when you're firing too slow, everybody in the team is kind of like they know. And so when you have that conversation like, hey, we let person XYZ go, you might be like, oh, the whole team's going to be shocked. But everyone on the team's like, oh, yeah, I had a feeling that was going to happen because like, you know, everyone's like senses are, are tuned enough to kind of like understand the situation. Yeah. I remember seeing that um, once at HVMN, I was like, wow, like I remember hearing that, but now I actually like, it's, it's super true. I actually like felt that experience. I saw it happen. Yeah. Um, and so leaning on like people's feedback for kind of like performance reviews in 360s is, is kind of like that evolved into having that process where we lean on people for feedback to kind of like detect those signals even faster. Right. Or just even like good partnerships, right? Like when it's, I think there's like another probably axiom where it's like, if it's really complicated to begin with, it's probably like too complicated to work in reality. Yeah. So I think there's something about like keeping it simple, these like maxims and axioms around like, hey, just like make it super simple because like make the relationship simple or make the API simple or make like the a- arrangement simple because there's going to be something wrong with the assumption in the beginning in the first place. And if it's already complicated and over-engineered and then you throw it against reality and it's complicated on top of the complexity of reality, then it's going to like fail for sure. And I think that's why going back to simplicity and understanding, okay, we think we're really smart. We can over-engineer and like think about all the possible scenarios here and think about all the edge cases. And you just realize you just can't. Now I want to kind of pivot, but also broaden the conversation that obviously we've talked a lot about some of these principles of leadership and self-discipline in a work setting, but obviously that has translated into personal what do they want to call it, biohacking or, or human performance? I think one of the lesser well-known stories is that while well, HVMN and I've been like a very broad public speaker on fasting, it was actually you, Paul, at the end of 2015, really coming into the HVMN office a couple months into the job, talking about, hey, like there's some interesting research out of a USC longevity research right. group. I'm going to do this fasting thing yeah. and I want to make these like concoctions of 200, 300, 500 calories to uh, do these 60 hour fasts. Yeah. Do you want to, want to tell that story? Yeah. So the origin of that story is actually a little bit before uh, joining HVMN. Um, so after my crypto startup that didn't work out, I joined a uh, large tech company um, and it was kind of like coasting there just as I was like figuring out the next thing. And I actually uh, came across that, I think it was like a talk 
or that, that discuss like some of the studies that Walter Longo uh, recently published. Now I was like, wow, like I want to live forever. Like let's let's go. So I was really motivated by longevity, even though there were some like really nice um, benefits on the body composition side. And so I started off at a big company, and I would make these jugs of I think it's like some almond milk protein powder and like some other stuff um, just to kind of have like three to 500 calories to start easing into these fasts. And the fasts that I started doing off were actually like pretty long. I was doing like 60 hour fast from day one. Like yeah. didn't, didn't, didn't know about like the warrior, like the 16, eight and all that stuff. It's like, yo, let's just do a 60 hour fast. And so I would stop eating on Sundays and I would fast all Monday, all Tuesday and I would have breakfast on Wednesday. And I started doing this at a big company and everyone was like thinking I was like super weird. They were like, yo, like, why aren't you eating? Like there's free food, like come on, indulge, like eat, look at all these snacks. But a big reason why I was doing it was to kind of like help control like some of these pressures that you have in some of these like big companies where you have like uh, chocolate and Reese's and snacks like 24 seven. And it's like really hard to just like moderate your consumption. Um, but everyone was kind of like judging me for doing it. It was like, oh, like you're not fat. Like don't, why are you like starving yourself? And nobody really understood. And then I joined HVMN uh, back then, that was Nutribox, yeah. and it was, like, super busy for the first month, so I kind of, like, put that on pause, and then uh, I was like, hey, like, I wanted to start fasting again, like, I actually shared some of the studies with, uh, back then, Sumit, uh, Dr. Sharma, who mm. was our, uh, one of our research team members back then, he's like, yeah, this this seems legit, and I'm like, okay, cool, like, let's, let's do, like, some company fast, and the first person that was down to try it with me was actually Michael Brandt, yeah. and so we did our first fast, and I came into the office with this, like, sludge in our little, like, we had, like, mason jars that we made for some of our products, and I just had, like, jars of sludge and put them in the fridge um and so we would do these fasts together like monday and tuesday and i remember on the first fast i think it was on monday or tuesday um, this was michael brand's first fast and he felt quote unquote zippy he's like i feel so zippy and he was going around the office at like 7 or 8 p.m because we were working like pretty late hours we still do but uh like at 7 or 8 p.m there's like no one in our in our shared working space yeah. and he's just, like doing like pull-ups and push-ups all over he's like man this fasting thing is great i have so much i'm hungry but i have a lot of like mental energy it feels good um and so mike brand did it and then i think like uh you started doing it yep, and it took I gavin like three to six months of doing it yeah but really it was i think uh, a lot like me you and sumit were doing it together yeah and then we started um doing these long fasts and eventually bringing down like our sludge amount to zero calories so we could do like the full fast which was kind of like a real r more of a real fast versus like yeah. heavy caloric restriction yeah. and we started doing these breakfasts so i think the, the first couple of times it's kind of funny we would we would fast together and on wednesday mornings we'd go to this like brunch like this we would binge eat. we would binge eat <laughs> at brunch so we'd fast and be really good for uh 60 hours and yeah. then we'd order pancakes with syrup and hot chocolate with, like orange juice with like orange juice, juice like everything the whole thing and we would just like eat there for like an hour and be like oh and, like not do anything oh this is this is we're full we really indulge and then eventually we kind of like and I think this is one of the interesting things about like human performance and biohacking is that you don't have to be like 100% perfect from day one. You can kind of do it in phases, right? So you do the first fast with like some help and then you can do like your full fast with like a binge breakfast and then eventually you get to your full fast and you eat maybe like uh, you know some avocados and eggs and you're, 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 in the, you're in the money. Then you're good. But it takes time and it's okay to take time to kind of like phase through that. And then uh, we started inviting our community members and we started inviting our community people because I think you were talking to a reporter and you mentioned that we had these breakfast, these breakfasts that yeah. we had together as a company and uh, the first reporting crew wanted to come and we just sent like an email out and we had like I think 8 to 12 other community members that did the fast with us and met up with us in San Francisco Yeah, and that started this whole like year or two of we fast of we fast literally back to back like media crew filled breakfast 
we were at a small like coffee shop in San Francisco that maybe had like 20 seats. And one out of two times we'd take over the whole restaurant and and sometimes there's like three or four camera crews just like fighting over to like watch Jeff like slurp some eggs. (laughs) Yeah. So that's yeah. I think that's like a funny inside peek behind the the spark from pure read science, but also the experimentation. Again, think about this was early. This was late 2015, early 2016. And I remember my initial first reaction was that growing up in a standard Western diet kind of household, um, not eating it's like for 24 hours seemed like it was impossible. I remember yeah. it was just like, oh, like I'm like, am I just gonna die? Like it didn't even like we had no idea if it was even physi- physiologically possible. Yeah. we we didn't really know about ketosis back then. Yeah, and there's no literature on the space, yeah. right? Like no one talked about intermittent fasting. And I remember a lot of the early conversation is that, is this Silicon Valley tech bros having eating disorders? Right. Like, that was like the main narrative. It's interesting for me from two perspectives. One is the nature of media and how they drive narratives. And then two, just from the evolution from science and taking evidence and data and applying it into the real world. And I think, I think you were described it quite nicely. We had our best understanding of the data at the time. And we had, you know, sludges that we were, you basically, exactly right. Like we were basically doing heavy caloric restriction down to a pure water fast and then binge eating and then realizing that binge eating probably wasn't effective in terms of just like being very, very low insulin. And then bam, you just eat like three, a stack of three pancakes with blueberries with maple syrup, jacking like, you know, 300 grams of glute carbohydrate in like a sitting instantly. It's probably not good for your insulin response. Uh, and then getting much, much deeper into the science and, and physiology. And I think, I don't want to claim too much credit, but I think it is worth noting. I think we'd established a lot of the best practices, at least within Silicon Valley, in terms of, you know, nicknaming things like uh, a monk fast, which is a 36-hour fast, or a warrior diet. I mean, warrior diet was something that was previously known, but just helping people get familiar with some of these fasting routines. Right, because that was one of the big issues. A lot of people would ask, like, okay, what's the best fast? Like, yeah. what's the right fast? Is it better to do a short fast or a long fast? And yeah. there's... Even to this day, like we're getting like a lot more, inf- uh, there's a lot more research. There's a lot more interesting uh, research about like, you know, the, the time at which you have your eating window and stuff. But back then there was like very, very little research. It's like I think the nice thing about fasting is that it's very similar to exercise where it, I think, offers benefits on like multiple time scales. And I think that's super valuable for picking up like a, a good habit. You've got autophagy, which could potentially help with like other other biomarkers, but you don't really feel that on the day-to-day, right? right? Like, you don't feel like, oh, my insulin's, like, super good right now. Right. Um, however, like, there's some kind of, like, medium-term benefits. Like, hey, you can actually feel, like, these body composition improvements. You can actually feel, like, kind of, like, you're, you you look leaner, you're in good shape for some people. That can be a goal um, or, or just pure weight loss. And then there's also this kind of, like, very short-term aspect, which is um, you feel pretty good when you're fasting. If you actually – I think one of the interesting things with fasting is that it requires, like, a high level of, like, mental activation energy – it's really easy to fast if you really want to fast, but it's really hard to fast if you're like kind of want to fast. Because um, <laughs> if you're super committed, you're like, nah, dude, it's good. I'm not eating today. But if you're like, oh, I'm kind of going to fast, then it's like, oh, man, like I'll just literally have some eggs. You know, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, but but if you're like committed, it can actually be pretty easy. And then you can feel like really good for like a day or two and not worry about that. Yeah, I think the analogy to exercise is actually a very apt one. I think that's how fasting will be viewed in the near future and within just broader society. Exercise 
takes some mental activation energy to go to the gym or go do some pull-ups or push-ups right now, right? If you're listening to this podcast and you're at home, why not just like do some air squats while you're listening? There's some mental activation energy there, but as you develop a habit, it's actually fun. You feel really good about it and it becomes a staple of just what I, I think what we both consider like a well-lived life. And I think the same thing for fasting. If you're not if it's just something that's passive, yeah, like why do extra push-ups? Like, yeah, why not just eat like an extra little yep. egg or a bacon? But if you just actually decide, hey, I'm going to do like an hour of exercise every single day, it's like very simple to say, hey, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm going to do a 16-8 or do an 18-6. I think a very apt analogy. Let's talk about the second part, which is like kind of the media cycle around it. I think that was like an interesting early learning experience for both of us in terms of how to build cultural movements or how to build communities and, I, and I've seen a couple of these templates is that there needs to be some kernel of science or truth behind any interesting movement, right? If it just doesn't work, no one will do it. Yeah. It, it, you might fool some people for a little bit and it just crashes. No one talks about it. But I think what makes something like really interesting from a narrative perspective is it needs to play into some broader commentary, whether it's positive or negative, that either reinforces or breaks uh, existing norms. And I think the narrative that we had kind of going on was that there was these Silicon Valley tech bros that were doing nootropics and smart drugs, and they're also having eating disorders. Like, these are just weirdos in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, let's go talk to them and see what they're up to. Uh, yeah, I want to hear your thoughts about that. Like, do you have some broader lessons, takeaways, or reflections from that experience? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, a lot of people reach out to me seeing a lot of the work, I think, that you and Mike Brandt led on, on the PR side yeah. um, and ask for, like, hey, like, do you have advice on the PR side? Like, who's your agency? Um, I think you're right. Like, it's important to capitalize on a nugget of truth that's already kind of, like, getting uh, getting exciting, getting interesting. So, especially as a small-ish company, right, like, when you're not Apple, you're not Google, like, nobody really cares, like, whether you hired someone new or whether you, like, launched a new product. Like, you know, people care, but, like, it's not newsworthy. Like, the media, the 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 world doesn't care. Um, and that's fine. Like you can still work on stuff that like the whole world doesn't care. So you need like something where like the world really cares. And I think that um, talking about food, talking about like this new uh, fasting thing that really breaks a lot of like social norms is kind of very interesting. And I think a big part of it, and that's something that we start thinking about in our, in our marketing campaigns too, is the story, there needs to be a story, um, right? And there needs to be tension. Um, so I think for like fasting, there was obviously a lot of tension because it broke so many different views around food, around breakfast being important, around like, I'm scared of fasting. Like, aren't you going to die? Like, you know, there's a lot of tension there. I think we're seeing that with a lot of other food based uh, kind of like stories and media cycles because there's like so many different like communities that like it's very easy to build tension. So, for example, like veganism there's a lot of tension across like people that either don't support veganism for reason A or B or like carnivore diet, right? Like there's obviously like a ton of tension when, when they talk about anything, like there's like a whole, you know, whole population, baggage um, that, you yeah. know, there's a whole population around like, Hey, you know, no plants are healthy or whatever, not making claims, but you know, there's this view of like plants being healthy. There's a view of like, Hey, you shouldn't eat animals for, um, for moral reasons, X, Y, Z. And so like, if you're able to find like a, a nerve that has like this tension and that also has like this wider appeal, like food, that can be really interesting. When companies ask me for advice on the PR side, it I usually tell them like, hey, you the easiest thing you can do, do all this like ABC PR stuff, like hit up journalists, like do your, you know, your PR news stuff, hire an agency potentially. 
but really what you should try to do is find a way to plug your company and your story on like a bigger, like what you like to call as like a macro trend, right? Yeah. Uh, and some companies have been doing a pretty good job tying themselves on the, you know, uh, politics stories around the elections, around like immigration, things that are, again, like that already have a lot of tension, already have a lot of conflict and press is looking for an expert to talk to. And so if you're working on that industry day in and day out, you are an expert and you can become even more of an expert and be known as an expert. And every time there's like a story, they're like, Hey, let me call Jeff to get like feedback from like, you know, this, you know, professional biohacker. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like a way you can really kind of like get like mass media and something more than just like, you know, really like a dry tech crunch article. That's like, Hey, company a raised money yeah. or something. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the easiest way to get people to care is do something that people care about. Yeah. Like, don't try to hack it by saying, hey, my little boring little app that no one cares about, I want like to pump it out there. It's like, if it generally no one cares about it, it's very hard to do. But yeah. if you just do something interesting, novel, a little bit wild or a little bit controversial, those are the things that yeah. I think I, as a consumer, want to learn about and listen to. Those are just more compelling people. Yeah. I think just go from, again, from systems thinking, go from first principles. People like stories, people like drama, you know, you, for people to like, people consume media like the TV show, right? Yeah. Like the people that are like reading the news and stuff a lot of time, it's like not a lot of people do it to kind of like get educated, but a lot of people do it as like passive, like entertaining consumption, right? Yeah. Um, and so you need to make sure you're providing like entertainment for those people. Yeah. And so I think having like good story, having tension, having controversy, being polarizing, right? Having like a really firm stance that people can it's important for people to be able to strongly agree or strongly disagree with. If you come in with like a mild perspective, then nobody's going to really care. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that you mentioned, which I also share, which I think makes us and gives us a naturally interesting perspective is that most people enter and start learning about their health and wellness after a medical issue or an accident, right? You look at the founding stories or, narratives of a lot of people that are in the industry it's like oh my grandfather had alzheimer's and therefore like that would be my life mission to solve that disease or i got really fat and obese and then i really needed to like figure out how to like cut weight and be strong and now i'm a fitness influencer and i think when we entered the health and wellness or human performance space is mainly focused on improving cognition and then looking at health span lifespan which is very different from how again talking to multiple, well, like hundreds of people in the industry, very different perspective and very different goals. Fasting, nootropics, ketosis have applications for cognition and longevity. But I'm curious in terms of other things that you've done, whether that's other lifestyle hacks, what other things has that initial different perspective enabled you to explore and think about? Yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's a few things, but some of the main pillars are like exercise, and then kind of like diet, in which which I think includes like fasting, right? Yep. The first thing was cutting out soda. Like I used to remember like in the dorms at Stanford, there was like a soda machine and I would just like live on, on Diet Coke or, or Coke Zero, just like drinking all the time. And like my first step was really to just like cut that out. Um, and then eventually kind of like trying fasting and other things. I think some of the more interesting recent ones are being like really thoughtful about like sugar. Um, actually like listen to... I, I love sweets. I'm French. I love like macaroons and like eclairs and like croissants. So like I love dessert. I used to like make like bomb creme brulee and it's just like so good. Um, so it's, it's always been like a hard thing for me to like not binge on sweets, like chocolate chip cookies, Nutella, all that stuff. But I listened to podcasts. Um, I forget with who, one, one of your podcasts and I'm talking about like just like a small mention of how like 
um, having like processed sugar like increases like inflammation and for some reason that stuck with me and that created kind of like a spark of motivation for me to just like cut out sugar for like 20 days straight and I traveled to France back then and like it was like my dad's birthday and I went to like different like bakeries all the time and like there was so much sugar in front of me and I don't know what exactly there was just like some unusually high level of like motivation for me to cut sugar because of that moment um and so that trigger was kind of like interesting because it's like i've tried to cut out sugar like a ton before and now i've been like pretty successful like even on retreat i'm like three or four days now without like sugar um so i can keep like these pretty good periods but it's weird like where that comes from but i think i think that's kind of like something to to think about is like where that motivation comes from because you have like you have it in like burst almost and i think it's valuable to just like jump in when you have that it's like um, one of my friends said like ambition comes in waves um and so if you're able to just like realize you have that ambition to do whatever healthy thing or like productivity hack or biohack just like start doing it right now while you're like really motivated and hopefully like you can carry that through yeah i think that's like an interesting way to think about habit forming because a lot of people say oh motivation is temporary so it's Mm -hmm. not even worth it but i think what you're saying is that don't even be judgmental around where the motivation comes from. Just jump on the bandwagon when you have some extra discipline. Yeah. And hopefully they reform habits around it. Like don't overthink it. Just just start doing it. There's a common kind of like saying that talks about like willpower yeah. being a, limit, a limited resource, a finite resource. And I actually had that mindset for a long time. I was on the plane back from France and I was reading this study, but I forget who it was. We can, we can maybe pull it up later. It basically proved that willpower is not a limited resource specifically and it's uh if you exercise willpower you actually kind of like generate more willpower because of the like positive feedback loop and that was like a huge like paradigm shift in my thinking which was like hey like a lot of the excuses I would make for maybe not working out or whatever is like, oh, like I worked really hard today, so like I'm not gonna work out, you know? Or like, oh, I'm like really tired today, I don't have that much willpower, so I'm gonna like snack and eat like yep. unhealthy. Um, and so when you kind of like flip that mindset and know that it's like scientifically shown now, my understanding of that principle, principle was like backed by science, so I like really strongly believe in it. It's, it's a very different like approach because like, hey, like, all right, I'm gonna do a little bit of good because that's gonna help me be like, better the rest of the day right so like hey there's like this little snack i'm gonna be good for breakfast and skip this this maybe piece of sugar and then you're on a roll then for dinner when like your buddies like make lava cakes you can be like nah like i'm already like on this roll i'm not gonna i'm not gonna indulge right and so that like compounding uh the kind of compounding benefit of like exercising willpower is a really interesting uh psychological phenomenon which i think most of my life i grew up like on the on the wrong side of the coin like i actually believe that willpower yeah was finite. i think that's also again just from a meta perspective you built a mental framework to guide how you think about willpower right like you think about it in terms of compounding momentum versus limited resource yeah. that simple realization changed your effectiveness in sticking to some of these habits which i think are some of these lessons in terms of leadership and culture i know that I, I, before talking broadly again about leadership and culture about how we've built an interesting team dynamic and culture i want to talk a little bit about all the other biohacking experiments that we've done because i would say that you know you've been one of my thought partners and crazy people to do some of these experiments with me right like we've done continuous glucose monitors where we have there's one big one big experiment we have to talk about what the seven day fast Yeah, talk about the seven day yeah let's talk about the seven day fast story okay so this was when uh back in november a couple years ago jeff and i were pretty heavy into fasting doing I think Jeff was doing like a 36 hour fast every week I was still doing 60 day 60 not 60 day fast 60 hour fast 
we so went it's been like a three, four years ago. Yeah, now. yeah. We went to this conference in Las Vegas that our uh, one of our investors, Andreessen Horowitz, put together, um, and it was like a really good three day conference in in the Win, uh, really big hotel in Las Vegas. That's a lot of a lot of clubs, a lot of casinos, a lot of like food. So people really go there to kind of like indulge and let loose. So we were there for a conference. We networked with a bunch. And on the last day, Jeff and I are networking. I think we were might have been like fasting during that point. Um, and then eventually everyone kind of like goes to this uh, big well-known club called Encore Beach Club. We kind of like go there with like a networking spirit. There's like a bunch of like tech people going in and like talking about like tech and software in, in this corner. And there's like a bunch of people just like pulling up to Las Vegas, like let loose in like the other corners. And so it's like really this this funny like this funny concoction of people. Um, and so like a lot of our, our colleagues and, and networkers were really starting to like let loose and just like, you know, just, you know, get the bottles out, like, you know, drink up, like get some food in. And Jeff and I were, were still working. I think we had some important things to do. So we didn't, I don't know if we drank at all or, or maybe like a drink or two. Um, and so fast forward like to like 3 a.m. We're talking to people and then we go to this restaurant and just like, we're starving after kind of like being up for a while, pretty sober. We're just talking about how like, Everyone in Vegas is like crazy and like really not taking care of their health. Um, meanwhile, well, we were or, I remember ordering like a clam linguine pasta. Meanwhile, we ordered some like heavy, heavy carbs, like I think pizza and like linguine, and we're like, damn, like we're eating like a lot of carbs. We got to get back on this like keto train. And then I think I, I'm like, yo, Jeff, we should do like a seven day fast or something. And Jeff like laughs, like, oh, dude, that's like so long. We can't like not eat for seven days. I'm like, nah, dude. Some people in our community are doing like 14 day fast. We got to do it. And it's like 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m. We're like eating like some pasta and stuff. We're like, oh, all right, let's do it. And like shake on it. And then we're like, oh, beep. <laughs> like we're doing a seven-day fast, damn. And so we schedule it for New Year's. And the funny thing is we, we loop in like the whole company. Um, and so I think early we January. Had, like we invited the entire WeFast community. I believe over 100 people signed up with us. Yeah, 100 people like signed up to do this fast. Every current employee at the company committed to trying the fast. Yeah. However, we had a new employee joining on our seven-day fast week, Michael Lee, head of design. So we show up on Monday not eating. And he's like, yo. Why is nobody eating? You know, like it's his first day on the job and, he, and he's the only person eating at the company. Um, so that was kind of like a funny dynamic. But we pushed through. We did the fast. I think like a few people um, decided to break it early. Zill, Zill lasted three days, which is super solid. Um, I think one of the things like we do challenge each other to do these fasts, but it's like no judgment, right? Like it's like do what you can, right? It's like no one's like pushing anyone to like bench like 800 pounds. Like, yeah. you know, like push yourself, but within reason. So it's like it's we encourage people to join, but it's not like it's cool if like. Yeah. You're not, no one's forced to do the seven day fast, right? right? But we did it. Um, it was really interesting. I think the hardest thing for me was not necessarily the hunger. It was, I just missed food and flavor. Um, so by like day six or seven, I was going crazy, just like smelling different foods around the office. Like we got my, a bag of like one pound bag of my favorite beef jerky and I would just like open it and just like sniff it and, like, and then close it. Yeah. Yeah, I want to fill in a little bit of context from my perspective as well. I remember, yes, that at that time we had built quite a big following within the WeFast community. And you're exactly right, people were starting to extend it fast. And I remember being inspired to try doing a seven-day fast a number of times and would stop at three days, stop at four days. It was very hard to do seven days. Um, and I think that challenge, we shook hands and then kick off the new year. I think it was like seven days in, I believe, 2017. Yeah. Um, as like a way to kick off the new year was finally the catalyst that like helped, you know, help me push through, but definitely like the multiple attempts to do extended fast, I think got me much more metabolically flexible to be able to do that. I think there's probably, I think there's some photos from like the guardian where it was like, we were all very lean. 
Very lean and chiseled, yeah. yeah. I, I I went down from like 155 to 142, I think, something yeah. like that. I mean, a lot of that just just for context is like water and food weight too, yeah. right? Um, but definitely some some yeah, a lot of glycogen. Pound or two shed, right? Basically, just stored carbohydrate. Yeah. Glycogen sticks to a lot of water. But I think we were also doing it like somewhat reasonably, right? We had blood glucose sticks, blood ketone yeah. sticks. I did DEXA scans before and after that fast. I, and I remember some of the most interesting observations again when this was much less use use was that. When you, we, I, I'm, at least I worked out. I don't know if you worked out during the seven days. Yeah. But it was very interesting in terms of observing your energy levels while doing workouts and also just observing how your body can produce sugar through gluconeogenesis. Right. Remember during workouts, as you were doing heavier lifting or trying to do some cardio, your, your blood sugar would spike even though you had been for that. five days, yeah. which is an interesting observation. And ketones now, would go down quite a bit too. Yeah, ketones would be consumed. So let's talk about some of the physiological observations, but I also want to talk about the spiritual, mental portion of it as well. Do you remember your workout regimen? Because I know that I had to switch my plans. Yes. Well, so basically, one of the things as of reading the literature, again, we didn't just like decide to do this on a drunken Vegas trip. Like we actually at this time probably had about a year and a half of fasting experience right. and also got much, much deeper in the literature. You know, having done a number of podcasts with Jason Fung, some of his literature and in his essays around growth hormone elevating mm-hmm. during longer fast was interesting to me. And then stimulating mTOR, stimulating muscle would help enhance and preserve that lean muscle tissue. So I would try to do a mixed workout of doing some aerobic and then making sure I do lifts. And what was interesting for me was that my lifts were consistent. I didn't lose that much power actually, but my cardio was like down. It was like very painful to like, I didn't want to run. It was like, like, maybe I just wanted to walk on the treadmill for like 10 minutes, like walk, like a half mile or something. Every other exercise, um, yeah, I think my strength was retained. Yeah, I concur with that, especially, so I used to do a lot of strength training during my 60-day fast. Yeah. So I would... 60-hour uh, fast. 60-hour fast, yeah. stop eating on Sunday, and then usually I'd do like a strength training either on Monday or Tuesday, depending on, on whatever. Um, and the first couple times it was hard, but once, and you'd kind of like wake up hungry, but once you kind of like committed and starting to really like go at it and do it and do your first lifts and like warm up it kind of you kind of like got rid of hunger and just got back into it yeah. and you'd be able to like maintain strength i actually never really noticed like a difference so i mean first of all like if you've eaten like the night before you still have like a lot of stored glycogen potentially yeah. um but i have like no problems like working out fast heavy yeah. doing like heavy lifts like fasted however on day like four five or maybe five six or seven um, I actually just like canceled the workouts because I felt like pretty just like generally like low energy. Um, so I don't know like what happened. Like, I mean, I think obviously like the the fast got more and more extreme over time. But I think like within like a, I would say a medium fast of like two to three days, I have like no issues doing strength training. But it was quite difficult for me on on the second half of the seven day fast. Yeah. I ended up not doing anything. So I wonder. What, so I there I also had a little bit of a challenge. As I remember on day five, six, seven, and I started doing a lot more electrolytes. So I got. I had a lot more salt water and potassium. Yeah. So I imagine that probably some of the challenges for these longer fasts, especially if you're exercising, that you're sweating. You're losing, excreting sodium potassium. And then when you already are fasting, your insulin drops and you excrete more of these electrolytes out through your urine. Yeah. So you're, we're essentially compounding a lot of electrolyte loss. So I remember um, maybe day five, day six, having some salt that really helped me you know go be able to continue to work out yeah i think we were did, all, you, did you try salt? yeah we, we were all yeah. we were all i think just passing around like different salts and electrolytes yeah. in the office yeah. um i think a big part of it is also like the mental aspect because i think it, it 
I think it takes like a little bit of commitment to be able to just like push yourself to just like go hard into the exercise when fasted and yeah. then your body kind of like adapts and, and metabolism takes over. But um, maybe I just didn't have that for the, you know, day five and day six. Because again, like the first couple times I tried working out fasted, um, that was really hard. Not sure if it was because I was just like, oh, I'm working out fasting for the first time and it was like a new thing and I just didn't believe I could do it. Or because I actually got like metabolically adapted and it became easier. Yeah. Um. So I'm not really sure what what it actually is. Yeah. Do you remember your uh, physiological biomarkers? I remember, and I think Zill was helpful pulling up some of the historical records. At the end of the seven days, I was at 5.4 millimole ketones, and my blood sugar was in the 60s. Very, very deeply in ketosis. And there's this notion that Thomas Siegfried has popularized the ketone glucose index. So very, very deep in, in therapeutic uh, ketosis there. Do you remember like all the specific biomarkers and, and all of that? I don't, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the cycles, yeah. right? I remember ketones going up throughout the day and then going down as you went to bed. Uh, and especially like, w- you know, waking up with like relatively low ketones and having like, another kind of like uh, dip in ketones and rise in blood glucose during the, the workouts like we talked about, but I don't remember the, the absolute values. These tools used to be only available to professional athletes or people that were you know very, very sick. And now yeah. as consumers, we can use this to actually understand and inform ourselves on how to live a better life. Uh, I want to move towards... The- Speaking of that real quick, one of the ways I learned the most about food um, and improved my diet was actually through the CGMs, the continuous glucose monitors. Because... You can kind of like look at different foods and look at the label and kind of get a sense of like whether it's good for you or, or bad for you. Um, but there's nothing quite like eating something that you think is fine and just seeing the blood glucose spike and just kind of like uh, getting that empirical understanding like, oh, wow, like, you know, this food actually is like X, Y, Z better or worse than like that food and just kind of like seeing those reps, right? Yeah. Um, so that was like a really valuable thing that I, that I think we all did. Yeah, I mean, did you have like an experience? I remember this very, very clearly where I was flying to Boston. I was I had my CGM on. I'm like, I want to eat. I got a double Whopper with a full thing of Coke. And this is very, very early in our fasting keto days. I'm like, I deserve this. I want to eat this. Bam, bam, bam. And then I see my blood sugar literally spike. I think like 200, 250. This is, you know, like almost double, triple for you like really want to be. And I was like, wow, like, I, I think we all know that drinking a sugar bomb and a fast food hamburger isn't necessarily good for you, right? Yeah. Like that's, we all know that, but just seeing the numbers. Yeah. Just seeing like it affect your body. It's like, yeah. Hey, this is your blood glucose, like going up, like right now, was it worth it? Like, yeah. you know, you kind of like, like, damn, like, you know, people can tell you like, Hey, drinking a, a Coca-Cola with like 30 grams of sugar is bad. But like, once you actually do that and can measure the impact, you really, I think, have a different mindset and, and view around it. And it's easier to be like, hey, like, I actually know exactly what this does to my body. It's not just me trusting some scientists in the air. Yeah. Um, like, we, we, we did it, we measured it, we tried it. I think that that's, like, really powerful in terms of, like, educating yourself. Let's move on to the spiritual cognitive psychology behind fasting. Almost every single religious culture or tradition has some sort of long fasting. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to share my experience, but curious to get your broader thoughts around the psychological aspect of fasting, especially for seven days. Yeah, so just a, a couple notes on the spirituality and uh, I think camaraderie aspect of fasting. I, I'm actually Jewish, so I've done like Yom Kippur, which is a 24-hour fast, and I remember that was like crazy hard, like so hard. Yeah. And then when I did it like after my like 60-hour fast, I was like, oh, we're chilling. Normal but, day. Uh, but it's funny because it, it's 
you, you do it for like abstinence and to kind of like get forgiveness for your sins, right? And I think it, it kind of like ties back to kind of like a lot of the consumption culture that you have in modern days and like doing these fasts, abstaining for a little bit, just kind of like resets, you know, resets your, your mental calibration on that stuff, which is interesting. A lot of like great relationships are built by doing experiences with people. And I think... Or shared um, suffering. Or shared suffering or whatever. And I think the more extreme the experiences are, the more the deeper the relationship you can build. And so I think by doing like a, a hard fast and having these shared experiences around like being hungry and like, you know, like looking at like food porn together and, and you know, the, going through the ups and downs, you can actually build like really good relationships. And I think that was something that absolutely brought our company closer together because um, we would obviously work and do, you know, corporate kind of like uh, intellectual work, but we'd have this whole like camaraderie around these like call it like challenges or biohacks that really kind of like put us through these struggles together. And yeah. I think that's like, when you look at like people like organizing like team building summits, you, you do like these challenges and like all these like kind of like manufactured exercises to do that. And we were just like doing it just organically, just organically yeah. and normally. Um, so I think there's definitely like a really nice like uh, camaraderie aspect. And then lastly on the psychological side, like that's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, go, I go back to fasting is um, you're in a culture where like, you know, it's, it's a snacking culture. It's a heavy consumption culture. You have like food available all the time. You have like breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, protein shake. You got these like chocolate raisins. Um, and when you kind of like do that over and over again, like the first time you have a snack, it's easier to have it like a second time and you kind of get into this loop. Um, and so just abstaining from that from two days and having that mental contrast where like, yo, actually like earlier this week, I didn't have like any snacks. Like, why am I going to snack like three times on like Wednesday? Yeah. You kind of like realize that what you're doing helps you kind of like go back into this like you know observer mode that looks down at like paul doing his whole like dieting and, and being able to be self-aware i'm like hey you don't need to snack like you're just doing it because you're stressed or hungry that's like an important point i think a lot of people um especially in modern cultures like eat not because they're hungry they eat because they have some emotion whether that's stress hunger boredom yeah joy ah, it could be anything right but being able to learn to to uh, identify when you're like real hungry and when you're emotional and kind of crave food because it's nice. Yeah, I want to reflect on two thoughts there. One of the biggest things that I remember from that experience was needing very little sleep and feeling very, very sharp. I remember this was probably after I had come back from vacation from, I believe, New Zealand. I was jet lagged, went right into a seven-day fast, and then only needing to... Partly, I think, due to the jet lag, but also just, like, needing to sleep for three, four hours a night and then just being able to, like, do workouts, be really productive at work and be very, very focused. So, I'm curious in terms of, like, the sleep. Did you feel like you had sleep requirements change? And then from a mental acuity perspective, I felt very lucid and sharp yeah. and, and level. It wasn't necessarily, like, exuberant. I didn't have any sort of euphoria, per se, but very lucid, calm, focused. Yeah. I think a good way to describe it is... Um, from a mental perspective, if, you, if you're if you at lunch and you go have this like Chinese buffet, then you get back to eat, eat like a lot of carbs, a lot of like uh, a, lot of, a lot of glucose. You come back to the office and you're maybe at like minus 40%. Your hands are kind of clammy. You're kind of like sluggish. I think when you're fasting, it's like, you know, 40% in the opposite direction where you feel like really kind of like sharp and lightweight on, in, in, on your mind. And so that's definitely noticeable. Again, I, I didn't feel euphoric either. I, it wasn't like the greatest feeling in the world. I, some people actually do feel like that, but it, it wasn't necessarily like an amazing feeling, but it felt pretty good and sharp. When you're, when you're pretty lean um, and your body feels like light, it's like the same thing, but for your brain. Yep. Um, from a sleep 
perspective. It's interesting because a lot of people that I've talked to have completely different um Fasting affects them in different ways on the sleep side. So Michael Brandt, for example, and Gavin, I think, had major difficulties sleeping when fasting. Um, yeah, I had I, trouble sleeping as well. I so never I really had trouble falling asleep. The one thing I did notice was that I would get real hungry at night. So around like 9, 10 p.m., then I would go to sleep and I'd be fine in the morning another day. Um, yeah, that was, I think, the hardest part actually, yeah. like going to bed hungry. Going to bed hungry, brutal. yeah. That was that. That's probably like the hardest part for sure once you do it and you're like wait i'm gonna wake up tomorrow and not be hungry you kind of like help it helps like you cross that chasm a little bit i remember i think after day three day four us the hunger attenuates yeah right and i think i mean i mean there's good you know good early data showing that bhb drives ghrelin which suppresses appetite which makes sense physiologically and then one point that i wanted to reflect upon was this notion of eating for boredom and i remember when i first broke that fast at the end of that seven days you, I, I literally felt like the drug effect of serotonin and dopamine making me happy from that food consumption. I think that that, that feeling that very acutely, because again, I think we all realize that food when you eat is can be a pleasurable experience, yeah. but you don't really know about it because we just eat all the time. But I think after seven days, eating that first like little bit of chicken broth, a little bit of dates, I think I had an avocado. It literally was like a euphoric experience eating. Yeah. And I think just having that experience, realizing that, yes, food is a very potent mechanism that drives dopamine, that drives serotonin, allows me to better understand, okay, I need to control food, not let food control me. Curious in terms of as you broke that seven days, no, that fast, that was, how was your experience? That was the same for me. Yeah. Like, I, I remember that beef jerky I was smelling all week. I, like, grabbed that bag and just, like, had a couple, like, pieces. And it was, it was, it was euphoric. Like, it was the best. Like I literally, I think someone wanted to cheer. Yeah, I was like, I was cleaning up eating. Like I just hadn't tasted anything in seven days. Like no, no no taste. You know, feeling those flavors hit the palate. I think it was. I don't even know if it was like the the food getting digested or your your body like consuming the energy versus experiencing those flavors. Um, so I don't I don't know exactly what it is, but that was absolutely euphoric. Okay, let's zoom back out in terms of best practices in leadership. I think we talked a little bit about the framework for us as individuals. What is your broad sense over the last four years going from individual contributor to running teams now, running multiple teams across multiple domains as a, as a VP? What are some of the biggest takeaways, tactics, best practices that you would give advice to for people that are currently managing teams or want to be a manager later down in a career? So there's two Two books that I read that were pretty like transformative there. Um, the first one is called CEO from Within or The Great CEO Within. And it's just like a CEO coach just like dumping like a bunch of like valuable insights. And the other one is uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. And the interesting thing is that I think I learned and figured out like a few things on the leadership side by myself or from blogs. But when I read both of those books, I felt like my knowledge was at like, you know, two or three out of ten. And they were showing me like the ten out of ten picture. So again, they were showing me like all the mistakes they made and I kind of like inherited like you know, I fast forward like 10, 15 years. Um, one of the important principles that stuck was the importance of um, like fast iteration speed. Um, and I think that's something from like a project base. So like if you're building a website and you're able to iterate fast, you're able to learn from, you're able to get like faster compounding growth. Same thing on the finance side, if you're able to get results faster, iteration is super important. And that's something that 
is not necessarily always put in perspective, like what that means from a, from a team perspective. When you look at your team, you kind of can step back and look at it as a system, right? Your team and processes and iteration is really important. And so uh, one way to kind of like improve iteration is by making sure that everyone on your team has like really clear goals. And like the goals need to be, you need to be able to like look at them all the time. And it's really kind of like a self-grading criteria. So if you're working with someone and they don't know what it means to do a good job, it's really hard for them to self-correct. So imagine you're getting, uh, you're, you're doing a, a, you're doing the SAT and you're filling your, your grades in. And then like, I don't know, three weeks later you get your results. That's like three weeks where you don't know what you can do to improve. You can try, but you don't know. Imagine if you're doing the SAT and like every question you got like instant feedback, correct, wrong. Here's how you can improve. There's two ways you can do that as a manager. Number one is by being present and giving, you know, constructive, uh, criticism or, or positive feedback. And you can also make sure that like everyone has their own grading criteria so that they can look at the work they're doing and grade themselves and kind of like self-improve faster than just this kind of like, you know, loop that needs to involve like a manager or something. That's like super, super important. Um, and especially with people that are highly motivated and like owners or, and, and want to self-improve, I think having that is really powerful. And I think a quick way to gut check whether your goals are doing a good job is by asking your team members if they're looking at their goals on like a, you know, daily or weekly basis. People appreciate that grading criteria because they like knowing they're doing like great work. Um, so I think that's like super important. It's like one concept. And another one that's, that's important is one of the most valuable things I've seen is making sure that, um, whoever's on your team is responsible for kind of like one primarily thing and their kind of like core responsibilities only take up say 80% of their time. Um, so you imagine you have two scenarios. You have like one person working on two projects, you know, project A, project B, and they're doing kind of like, you know, 40 to 60% of project A, then 46% of project B. And they're, they're doing their job. They're making progress, but they don't have that much time to kind of like, again, step back and self-reflect. If you give someone just project A, um, they'll do more project A and they'll be done with like their initial kind of like job requirements or whatever in, in say, uh, in the first 80% of their time. If you hire the right person, they're not going to check out, you know, for the rest of the 20% and go play video games. Um, they're going to go read, they're going to go learn, they're going to go think what they can do better. And that's, yeah. I think, when you really get, um, call it kind of like innovation or, or, or generation of like really great solutions. Run your team like you run your hardware. Um, if you're managing a data center, you're not going to run your hard drives at 100% utilization because they'll burn out and fail. You run at 80%. Um, and for different reasons, I think that applies like really nicely to kind of like thinking about like how you run teams, uh, making sure that people have time to, you know, self-reflect and kind of like transition into the, you know, the, the God mode looking at like, you know, your personal work. I think that's like super important. And if you overload people too much and give them too much to do, then they're just going to be kind of like, oh, let me do this, 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 this. And you can do great work on a local scale, but you don't have that kind of perspective to step back and really think outside the box and be like, hey, like, are we even on the right track? Yeah. Like, And I would say that meta skill is a very rare skill set. And it's like, I think also hard to interview for, and, you know, just reflecting about, you know, if I had to give best advice in terms of a high performing team, I think it is having one, an underlying mission that's broader than just, hey, let's go make money. I think it's important that us as humans feel valuable, meaningful with our art, with our work. That's not just like, hey, I'm trading time for money, which unfortunately I would say is what most of us are doing in terms of how we look at our livelihoods. Like, okay, I'm going to trade this chunk of time 
with this chunk of money so I can then use that money to like do shit that do stuff I actually yeah. enjoy. And I think that's pra- pragmatically, I think most people have to make some sort of trade off there. I think that some of us that are luckier can skew more of their time towards making a light living through work that they actually find self actually so meaningful. So one, I think having like a core mission that's inspiring is very helpful. And then two, that self-selection part in terms of selecting for people that are meta aware that can self-improve. I think you're exactly right. I think certain types of workers you kind of have to, tr- you treat as like the hundred percent hard drive, but that's not necessarily going to be a high performing team because you're ut- literally utilizing them as a resource. Like it's like a human resource as opposed to a hardware resource. The best teams I've seen, everyone's a person. Everyone is multifaceted. And you almost want to encourage that kind of self-correction, yeah. self-learning. And I think, I think you've been a great culture banner there. As we do some of these retreats and these offsites, talking about reaching out to mentors, learning, having some of these books that you have given out to some of your teammates. I would say like the third interesting aspect, which you mentioned before, is this notion of shared experience or shared suffering. Companies have tried to do this by making these like fake corporate retreats, which I think give you some sort of camaraderie i think but, i think they work they work but um, if you but if it's truly organic if it's not like it's not contriving it's even more powerful agree agree right? so i think it, they can work it's a tool but if you actually have a shared meaning for a shared underlying mission that's really authentic to a shared experience i think yeah. that's like the magic combination well the, the nice thing is that we got all of these camaraderie and and team building perks for free because it was organic we were excited and and just doing this either way um and so you know the the company and the team gets free value from from these shared shared experiences that happen organically and i think uh, speaking of that i think one of the things we filter for and and i think we pitch heavily when we hire especially across like different cultures is is this is kind of like a you know the pitch is like hey you're really smart you can do great work at every possible company um but we want to make sure that like you working at you joining the company joining hvmn is going to be like the best move of your career like two years from now like whatever you do you can join hvmn and feel really good that you're going to grow like massively in two years um and i think that's also like super important from a team perspective because it goes back to having a job where you're trading your time for money and having a job when you're actually like generating like excitement and fulfillment right yes um and so you don't go to you don't have to go like trade your money on the weekends to be fulfilled you're actually fulfilled because you're learning and growing and a lot of the people we work with that we like to work with and we screen for you know the job doesn't feel like work it feels like people are intellectually curious they like enjoy solving hard problems they enjoy working they enjoy learning that really helps with like retention you know the the employees feel fulfilled um and so it's like you know they're not like necessarily looking for like a better bidder in terms of salary people get better over time so the team kind of like self heals and continuously improves so like you can have like the same people on a team in say 2010 and then like that same team in 2012 i don't know why i'm saying those years but like two years later is just like much better because we all work together to improve yeah that's actually an interesting point in terms of really seeing efficiency grow over these compounding relationships i think is one interesting observation and then two i think a lot of first-time entrepreneurs or early or first-time executives try to like hide the ball where it's like oh this is like actually the best thing for you and not being open about the fact that everyone is pretty smart and understands like there's like a transaction from a company to an employee um and i think i feel like a lot of times like the corporate the corporate speak is like this is the best company ever. Like just invest your entire energy in there, be in your box. Yeah. And I think one, it's not, I think people are too smart 
that there's too much information everywhere to understand when people are not being treated fairly. And then two, people are just pretty multifaceted, right? Like a company wants a software engineer to just be a super efficient software engineer. But that software engineer probably likes improving their health. They probably have different, they probably also interested in design or content or whatnot. And I think having a working collaborative environment where people can explore those interests within the context of the job, I think really makes that employer, that person, not just feel like a, again, a human resource, but part of an organic tribe that's like growing. And again, I think a self-healing is an interesting word or just self-evolving where it's not just like, Hey, there's just some genius people at the top. Like, they just have it all figured out. No, this is like a very dynamic, adaptive organism that self-evolves and self-adapts to the requirements of the problem set that we're trying to solve. Yeah. No, I think and uh, related to that is I think like how you approach those conversations yeah. um, and coming to them with I think two things. Number one is like radical transparency. So being really upfront with what the opportunity is and like what can happen. Um, and then also as a manager, not making the call for your employees and not being the one that generates the options. Yeah. Um, I think like a lot of, I think what, what I've seen a lot of success for is actually going to the person you're working with or, or the person you're managing be like, Hey, like start off by you telling me like where you want to grow, like what excites you? Like, do you want to, for an engineer, do you want to get really good at DevOps at like management at like design and asking like, what is what excites you the most? And just listening, right? They'll tell you. Like, they'll be like, yo, like, it would be dope if I got real good at front end. And then you're like, okay, great. Like, that's great. We need some front end work too. Like, let's make sure we do some, like, pairing sessions, right? And it, it's quite easy to do. Um, it just takes, I think, like, a, an open and, I think, like, ego-free mindset where it's like, hey, like, I'm not going to tell these people, like, what they want to do, what's best for them. You can literally have, like, a two-way conversation about it where you look at, like, hey, what's what's the kind of, like, best overlap between, like, your worldview and where you want to go and, like, what the company has to offer? And then we can we can just pick and choose and really be open about, like, whether, you know, what, what the best fit is. Yeah, I think that's a very mature, sophisticated new uh, understanding of leadership. Because I think, again, the very junior leaders, like, I am super alpha, like, I'm going to micro everything. And I think maybe that is the case when you don't have top caliber people working with you. But I just know I, that I don't even I don't even think so because you know everybody has ambitions everybody can learn and grow yeah maybe um, it translates to all levels and skill sets and experience sets but I think really I think it is about environment around to be productive and aligning incentives in a way that's very natural and organic I think that's yeah. like the magic trick that's kind of hard to pull off one of the other things that I've seen that has been really impactful from a, a manager standpoint and leadership standpoint is is having like a platform for feedback um, and again this helps with iteration so. You can think of your team and your processes and your work as like a machine. And as we have more and more people involved, you as one part of the machine can't spot all the weaknesses. So it's really important to have like, you know, literally forced context for feedback so that the person on this part or that part can kind of like help diagnose issues because that's how you improve the machine. You're like, hey, uh, I might be in the passenger seat and I might have someone in the wheel. And I need the person in the wheel to like notice that the wheel's broken or else we're never going to know, especially when you work with a lot of people in different cultures. So I think our, our company is very interesting because we have people that are fully American raised. We have people that have grown up in different countries like Europe and America. We have people in the UK. We have people in, in Minsk, Belarus and like Amsterdam, right? Completely different cultures. And so everyone comes with different perspectives. 
So it's really important to kind of like force, um, you know, a context for feedback and being like, hey, like, let's actually just like take time to reflect and, and come up with these, you know, diagnosis of issues um, and encouraging everyone to be kind of like, again, self it comes down to self-awareness, self-aware about not just their work, but like everyone else and having a really like open platform. One level deeper is like, okay, cool. Like you notice an issue, like what next? Um, I think one of the most valuable tools is the idea of like a proposed solution. So if you come up with an issue, like, hey, whether it's like, hey, I think the air condition is like too hot or too cold or like, hey, um, we're losing a lot of money on this initiative, right? It can be anything. Literally require like people to come up with a proposed solution. Um, and that can be a long form, like really flesh out solution or just a quick kind of like exercise to think about, like, hey, like I might not be the best person to come up with a solution, but let me actually just like give an attempt. And that helps with two things. Number one, it shows like, hey, we're here to solve problems together and it's our job to find problems and solve them. And it's like, you're not like, kind of like complaining it's complaining is good but you need to complain with like also backing up with solution i think complaining is great because it it's 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 really just like part of self-awareness yeah. um but it's it's a different kind of like cultural thing than than just like you know shoving up like problems all the time you're like shoving up problems but you're all saying like here's how i think we can solve it yep. and a lot of times you'll find that the people who you least expect to be able to solve the problem better um the best will have like a really creative solution and so we typically you know get a lot of value from that and then again like on one-on-ones uh, i think as a manager you're not here to necessarily like, tell people what to do you help guide people and so if you're working with an engineer and they identify like a weakness like maybe they were like unproductive one week um, having them actually generate solutions might be they, they might be great solutions and there'll be like so much buy-in because it's like hey like I found this problem and, and and here's how I think I can solve this problem no one's telling me to solve this problem that way like I literally just came up with a way to solve this problem and I think as a manager you can kind of make sure the solution is the correct one or a good one um, but having those solutions come up organically again is like super super valuable yeah. like again like instead of like hey you did something wrong go do this it's like hey like we noticed something went wrong and that problem is often self-diagnosed and you start building a culture of like hey okay you know I, I fucked something up like here's how I can improve and I think that's how like a lot of our, our company cultures evolved through this this process of again like you know you're, 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 just, you're designing a larger scale process for self-improvement for the machine yeah. by having like all of the nodes self-improve and then also having these like wider uh meetings you know every quarter where you kind of like collaboratively try to self-improve like on a, on, a, on a bigger level yep no i think that's that's brilliantly stated i think it's like it's not enough to just flag a problem it's like okay there's a problem also bring a solution yeah. and let's figure it out together just really yeah. i think there's a lot of people that talk about like complaining being bad like i love complaining and people that complain it's like a sign that like you care and want to do something better right yeah. um and, and then it's like the attitude around like the complaint that that's kind of like interesting you can complain and not do anything about it or complain and you know have a proposed solution right yeah well i think just like riffing a little bit on that i think some of the most interesting people have opinions right i think if you don't complain you just have no opinions right so i think almost just in terms of which maybe just is a kind of an interesting secondary attribute to potentially screen for in terms of talent is that opinionatedness is can be can be dangerous because you can be too dogmatic. But I think it's a good sign that this person cares. Yeah. If you don't care about anything, then you don't have any opinions. Having opinions, having things to complain about shows some sophistication around their observation of the world. But then the second order on that is like, okay, got to make sure that this person is also self-improving on their opinions yeah. and not just dogmatic. And that's a really good principle from like Ray Dalio, um, who talks about the idea of uh, idea meritocracy. Yeah. So it's really important to have these opinions, um, but it's really important to 
have a mindset where like, hey, you don't really care where the opinions come from and you're open to having these things challenged um, and like may the best idea wins or the most correct idea wins. Yeah. Um, and so when you have like a balance of someone who's opinionated and cares, but that can also be self-aware enough to kind of function in a idea meritocratic world, which is like, hey, if person A, who's really junior, came up with like this better planner idea and it's like provable that it's, you know, a great idea, then great. Like, let's, let's do it. Let's embrace that idea. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I've learned a lot over the last four plus years working with you side by side, I think, in terms of not just leadership and culture. Uh, it's been, and it's also been awesome to watch you grow. And I think hopefully we have much more to learn and grow and evolve and come up with our own maxims and, and, and books and principles down the line in the, in the coming decades. So for folks that want to tune in to get your updates and thoughts, I know you're reasonably active on social where do people find your personal thoughts and notes uh, mainly on instagram but it's uh more the play side of life i don't have that much that much content around like work stuff i think it'll be interesting to do a little bit more more stuff there i think this podcast is probably like a pretty good deep dive for for right now cool yeah look forward to having more of these conversations i really see this as a first installment of a dialogue around leadership and culture and creating high performance thanks so much yeah it's been great learning and growing with you jeff yeah cheers if you're interested to learn more about hvmn visit www.hvmn.com pod thank you for tuning in